ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Australian classrooms are among the most disruptive in the world, according to OEC data. Why do you think that is? This increasing disruption in schools is actually the focus of a Senate inquiry at the moment, due to report its findings in November. But this morning, I want to hear from you. If you're an educator, a parent, even a student, what's your take on this? Is disruptive behaviour getting in the way of learning at your school? Why do you think it's on the rise and how do we fix it? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. And it's Bromwin O'Shea here with you, filling in for Rochelle Hunt this week. So the data tells us our classrooms are amongst the most disruptive in the world. Why? And what do we do about it? We'll be asking a couple of Victorian schools for their perspectives this hour, and I'd love to hear yours too. But first, let's ask Erin Leaf. She's a senior lecturer in behaviour science at Monash University. What do we mean, first of all, when we talk about disruptive behaviour? What does that look like in the classroom? When I talk about disruptive behaviour, I'm generally referring to behaviours that happen often, they disrupt the class and they negatively impact the teacher's ability to teach and other students' ability to learn. So we might see behaviors like talking out of turn, creating excess noise, being out of seat, using respectful language or refusing to cooperate with teacher instruction, roughhouse and horseplay. So these are some of the behaviors that students report um, in the last OECD um, collect period that were happening often within their class. When it says that we're amongst the worst in the world, how concerned should we be about that? Yeah, look, it's it's a bit hard to say because we don't actually have a lot of um, recent data showing how often these behaviours happen in Australian classrooms and, and what they look like. So it's possible that these behavioural issues are happening more in certain contexts or in some schools rather than across the board. Um, I think that we need to be concerned, but I think there's pretty wide variability in the degree to which different schools are experiencing student disruption. Yeah, and if it's sort of based on what teachers are saying, what students are saying, you know, there's a whole lot that that's focused on just people's perception of, of it rather than a kind of scientific measure of disruptive behaviour, right? Yeah, we need more research that really looks at um, understanding how often these behaviours occur, um, what they look like and how much lost instructional time um, is happening as a result of disruptive student behaviour. I think the biggest concern is that these behaviours result in teachers spending a lot of time managing behaviour and very little time teaching um, and that can negatively impact the learning of all students within the classroom. Yeah, and there's texts coming in already talking about this and and one teacher saying, I've been teaching for 30 years and you you spend half your time dealing with behaviour and only half your time teaching. Is, Is that what you hear broadly from teachers in classrooms right now? Yeah, look, some recent research exploring teacher perceptions of their work actually shows that disruptive and challenging student behavior is one of the biggest stressors for teachers. They feel that they're spending more time having to manage these behaviors. um, And it's really resulting in, in stress, 
for teachers, teachers feeling like they don't actually know what to do to address the problem and, and teachers actually leaving the profession um, because of the stress associated with managing disruptive student behavior. Um, we, we'd love to hear your your responses, your insights. If you are a teacher or a parent, what are you hearing about what's going on in classrooms? We'll see if we can just um, resolve some issues we're having with your line, Erin. And let's head to Nick in Mooney Ponds, who's called in. Morning to you, Nick. Morning, how you doing? Good. What did you want to say? Um, so I went to a high school. I graduated in 2018, and we had too many male students um, in the year level. So the school's solution was all the way through every year level was to create one classroom with uh, all boy students, and about 15 of those were the big troublemakers, and about five were the nerds. I was one of the nerds to try and balance that out. Um, it was not very enjoyable. Um, we spent an entire term of lunchtime detention and yeah it wasn't great <laughs> yeah so nick what did that mean for your learning and and the way you felt at school and and the way you could you could absorb what you were trying to learn there um it was definitely a big obstacle um like uh your caller was saying there was got i'd say most of the class about 60 70 percent of it was disciplinary you know, trying to get people to focus, you know, kicking kids out, sending them coordinators, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so did that change? Like what, when you moved into a different year level, Nick, were there any changes then in how that felt? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this ran from about year seven till about year 11 um, mm. when the ratios kind of evened out um, in VCE. And I got to go in the smart kids classroom. It was great. I had a great time learned some great things, uh, got to um, learn some great teachers and they were actually able to teach us. So what do you think uh, solutions can be? Obviously, you can't always control who's in the classroom and the gender balance and, and that sort of thing. What do you think are some practical things that would help? Would have helped in your case? Um, I think probably a more realistic and uh, hands-on approach to who they're putting in what classrooms. Um, so when I went to primary school, for example, I know it's different because they're better behaved generally, but um, there would be uh, a big kind of consultation of teachers and everybody and decide, you know, if there were particular two kids that were troublemakers and they caused a lot of disruption, maybe separate them. If there's some kids that work well together, maybe bring them together. It's a little bit more effort and focus on those dynamics because I think they do make a big difference. Good on you, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing your direct experience as a student. Nick at Mooney Ponds there. A few texts coming in. One saying here, as an educator, I always felt that with the increased use of technology, student behaviour is changing. And um, a couple of others mentioning that it all stems to kind of helicopter parenting and entitlement and kids who have little respect. And then this says experienced staff leave and young staff are not supported. Erin uh, Leaf, what do we know about what might be the root causes of disruptive behaviour in the classroom mm. and, and how we then try to, you know, manage that. Yeah, that's a great a great question. And, and listening to some of the ideas about what could be contributing to it, we know it's multifaceted. We know there are a lot of factors that can contribute. But one of the things that I think is, is a contributing factor is that we think that our students come to school understanding the behavioral expectations at school and knowing how to behave, knowing the right thing to do. And we don't actually teach behavioral skills. And I think that um, what the research tells us is 
is that when we integrate behavior and social and emotional learning into the curriculum and we actually teach behavioral skills the same way that we teach academic skills, that students can learn how to behave in classrooms in really positive and pro-social ways. And it can make a really, really big impact on improving um, student behavior across the whole school. So Erin, the big question there is, is are behavioural skills things that once upon a time would have just been taught in family, in community? I mean, I can, I can feel all my teacher friends rolling their eyes saying, great, just another thing to pile onto our huge list of responsibilities. And, and yeah. why should we be responsible for teaching that? Yeah, look, I think maybe our expectations as a society have changed in terms of what behavior is uh, acceptable. And, and when, when we're talking about this within schools, we often talk about a, a culture, a classroom culture, a classroom climate at school and, and what behaviors are accepted and become sort of normalized within that environment. And it could be that our expectations have shifted. And I do agree that with the in, you know the increase in technology and with the increase in, in what kids are seeing on social media, on TV, in video games, outside of school, kids model the behaviors that they see. And if our society is really um, showing more things like unhealthy conflict resolution, um, ways of managing stress that perhaps are not um, ideal, and kids are bringing those behaviors to school, then it can really influence, you know, what happens within a classroom and perhaps how our expectations are changing. Um, I think it's really time for a reset. And it feels as though a lot of that is out of control of the classroom anyway. It could be, but look, I think that what we know from schools that have been really successful with turning behavior around within their schools is that they actually look for the things within the classroom that they can do and that they can control. And even if children are experiencing um, or learning about sort of unwanted behaviors outside of school, that when they come into school and they have high expectations, school is a place where the, the behavioral expectations are specified, they're they're identified, they're taught, and they're really reinforced is that we see really, really significant improvements in student behavior. So there is a lot that teachers can do, but I think it's not just on the individual teachers. It's a whole of school approach to identifying how we can support student, improve student behavior within our context. Erin, thank you so much. Erin Leaf, Senior Lecturer in Behaviour Science at Monash University. Let's head to Kevin. Kevin's called from Inverloch. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Right. How do we tackle this issue? Um, I think you can't. I re- yep. I mean, you look at Scandinavian countries and so forth that have in their society, community and culture a high level of respect for teaching and learning. And I think, and again, your lecturer Erin there was right when she said it was a societal thing that we don't really in Australia have respect for the career of educators as such. So when Erin talks about you can see that there is a um, a behaviour or a, an environment outside of the school where there's one set of behaviour and you can expect students to come into the school and adopt a completely opposite set of behaviours, I don't think that's realistic. So from my point of view, all of the work that we can do within schools and with students is always going to be very, very limited and as far as trying to get a broad level of success across student behaviour in Australia, 
until Australians and Australian cultural society can somehow change to see that the work of educators, education and schools is there to be respected, until you get to that stage, uh, I don't think that anything can have a broad range of success. I, I, I think that you're just stuck with the way it is and you can fiddle around with the edges as much as you like. But maybe in 10, 15, 20, 30 years' time, you can change that culture. I wonder how you do that, Kevin. I wonder how we've got to the point where, as you say, you feel that we don't respect the profession um, and therefore don't respect potentially the classroom environment. How do you turn that around? How do you turn around a, a, a deep, deeply entrenched cultural um, aspect to it like that? That's a, Well, that's the question because, I mean, I think we've been trying to do that since the early 70s and that's 50 years' worth and I don't think we've gotten any better. Mm. So I think it's just an Australian thing and you can we can have these discussions and we can spend millions of dollars on the research and we can have as many school programs as you like, but I don't think you're going to be successful with it. I think it's just the way it is. Kevin, thank you for your call, as depressing as it might feel. <laughs> well, Kevin's... no, don't, don't get me wrong, because yeah. uh, I do some fill in teachers and there's some absolutely terrific kids in there and you can go in for a day of teaching and you can have some really great success with kids who are prepared to listen to you um, and when you finish up their class and they walk, there's a group of kids that walked out there knowing more than what they did when they walked in, makes it extremely rewarding and it's those bits and pieces I think why teachers are there because of those sessions where you get really great response mm. um, makes it worthwhile but by, by and large there's also you know another 30 or 40 percent of those kids six eight ten of them that didn't want to be there and just didn't want uh, anybody else to be successful in that environment at the same time and that's Kevin, when comes in. Kevin great to hear your your insights thank you so much for calling being part of the conversation we're talking about why Australia's classrooms are amongst the most disruptive in the world it's actually the focus of a Senate inquiry at the moment but what are you seeing if you're an educator a parent a student why do you think we have this issue and what can we do about it? Luke has called from Crescent Head in New South Wales. Welcome, Luke. Hi, oh, g'day. I was um, volunteering in the primary ethics program. Do you have that in, in Victoria? I'm not aware of it, but, but that's okay. not to it's, say we don't. What is it, Luke? It's an alternative to religious uh, education in schools. and ah, It's okay. a program presented by volunteers. Mm -hmm. So for one term last year, my class size was cut from 30 to 15 kids because we've got another volunteer. And as soon as the kids are engaged at a level where there's uh, an intensity when of 15 people in the class instead of 30, the behaviour problems almost disappeared because you can ask them, you can speak to them, they can become part of the whole class and they feel really involved. And I think that's a real hint. I'm obviously not a professional educator, but smaller class sizes <laughs> may be the answer. Yeah. I, I don't know, someone will know, Luke, whether have class sizes increased over the years? Did we used to have far smaller classrooms? I mean, class classes, class sizes? Look, my, my school days are well and truly behind me. So <laughs> me I think too. I had 33 or so in my class. But imagine if we went from 33 to 15. Look, it's a huge change, very costly. But 
<coughs> education is really the future of um, of our economy. Everything, uh, you know, is everything. So do you know? It's not worth spending the money on. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that that you saw that noticeable change in behaviour once the class size dropped. Luke, thanks so much for calling through. A few texts as well. Um, bring back the timeout room where disruptive students are removed immediately and supervised by a teacher says Gloria. Someone here says actually class sizes have shrunk. So that's interesting, isn't it? And quite a lot of texts saying, you know, the issue really stems with parents and and even this, a lot of the problem comes from the attitudes from parents. In my early days, writes Jill, my parents had the approach that the teacher was always right, even when they were not. These days, parents come into the school and complain about the treatment their child receives, even when that child's behaviour has been totally inappropriate. It's poor role modelling from parents. What do you think? What do you think lies at the heart of what we're hearing is an increasing problem with student behaviour and disruption in Aussie classrooms? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. And we are talking about how we improve classroom behaviour. Apparently, Australia ranks as one of the worst in the world when it comes to disruptive behaviour in class. So what have your experiences been, whether you're a teacher, a parent, a student? What do you think is going wrong and how do we turn things around? I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Students get chats not consequences, says this che- uh, this text. And there are no real penalties that can be applied or enforced nowadays, and that leads to disrespect for any type of authority. Students think they're always right in the same way that the customer is always right. Adam Voigt is a former principal, also the founder and chief executive of Real Schools, which works with schools on culture and leadership. Hello, Adam. Boy, do we need you right now (laughs) at this point in the conversation. Uh, Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's an important topic and that's one that there there actually are some solutions to. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to chat about it. Good. I'm all ears about that. But first, it it feels as though the conversation has taken us now towards this question around culture, not just within schools but beyond schools and the way we view teachers, um, even just the way we view authority. Um, culture's your bag what what do you think is that part of this problem yeah i I think it is i actually think it's the the place that we can find the greatest opportunity for solutions as well it's one of those funny ones when i whenever i am speaking to even room fulls of principals i ask them to put their hand up if they think that the culture of their school is important and they they all say yes it is um when i ask them to keep their hand up because i want to know what culture is that they get a bit nervous and often laugh they turn into sort of Dennis Denuto from the Great Australian Movie to Castle when he says it's the vibe. <laughs> it's and, the vibe. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're all sort of aware of this big cultural thing that we have to attend to, but we're, we're not quite sure what it is. And if we're not sure what it is, we can't really be working on it. So the culture of our school, we say, is to use language that teachers are used to. It's a, it's a collective noun for, for, for behaviours. Every culture has behaviours that they encourage and that they tolerate. Um, schools trying to drive down to zero the tolerated behaviours is is a fool's paradise. You know, that's not what we should be aiming for. What, what they need is a really simple practice framework based on changes in language, changes in conduct, the way we resolve conflict and wrongdoing, the way even that we do our teaching and starting to think about our, our schools differently because they, they've changed. Kids are a bit different these days. Kids are showing up with more diverse challenges and um, so we need to help our teachers and then on the other hand we can look at our, some of the changes we need to make at a system level because there are some, some big levers we could pull there. I mean, every kid does bring 
bring a unique set of challenges and, and behaviours to school every day. And Kate in Albion has texted to say, you know, many children have complex complex lives which isn't being reflected in the current discussion so you know knowing that how do we um, create an environment within schools where you know kids know what's expected of them they know how to behave and that's modeled well by teachers too yeah, it's, it's really important that we do pay respect to the fact that kids are showing up with more diverse needs these days and more challenges than they have previously. So therefore, we need to invest in our teachers. We need to support them and train them to handle that. And we need to be a little careful of some of the, the mistakes that are easy to make. So it's easy to say, you know, I've heard some of the, the comments previously about, you know, going back to basics and timeout rules and further consequences and things like that. It's, it's one thing to say we're going to do that, but it actually disaffects a lot of kids. It actually brings more shame and failure into to the, into the environment when we do that. There are ways that we can actually help young people to get thanked and congratulated for taking genuine responsibility that don't require them to sit in three days' attention or cop three days of suspension because they actually tend to think really unproductive stuff when, they, when, they're, when they're left in those environments, and we know that. So what we need to do is to train teachers to be able to get busy on helping young people take genuine responsibility for the impact that their behaviour choices have on other people because then when they mess up, they learn that there's always something they can do to fix it up and that's what schools should be you know schools should be should, schools should be walking slowly and carefully away from being punitive and judicial systems and they should be moving more towards being what they should be which is a learning system you need to learn how to fix things up when you mess up um, and we need to expect that kids are going to they're unfinished brains they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna screw things up and i if think we can even as adults we're unfinished exactly. brains <laughs> exactly and therefore uh, our teachers don't need to feel like when they get it wrong that they that they need to they need to be lambasted or you know need to be, need to need to be punished they just need we just need to make school systems where we model that responsibility and teach kids how to do it themselves yeah adam stay with us i'm keen to hear what you think we could put in place in classrooms to to turn things around kieran mm. has called from winter vale hi kieran hi Kel. hi adam good, good what did you want to share uh, yeah, because before I text about the technology, as an educator, because I'm working as an education support worker from the last three years, I have done all my studies and I have teaching experience back from India. But now I'm working here in Victorian schools. What I have experienced, the, disturb, uh, the, the dis disturbing behavior, the disturbing behavior of the students, uh, because they are using too much uh, social media, I think, and whatever they learn from there, from the videos, from what's going on. So they come with those impacts to the school. And, and, and what flow-on effect is that having, Kieran, then, that you're seeing in the class? Yes, so I, what I feel like, yeah, because the teachers are always like, you know, uh, they always uh, act like to manage uh, their behaviour uh, while focusing on the teaching. So they don't have a much time for teaching. So every time if we have a disturbing behavior in the classroom, the teachers are always managing, uh, like, you know, they always uh, act. Um, they are just um, not teaching, but yeah, they are just, you know, uh, follow the uh, students who are disturbing the classroom. Mm. Kieran, yeah, the thank you for, for raising that. Adam, how much... How much blame should we focus towards social media, do you think, and tech? 
Yeah, I think we could we could spend a lot of time blaming, but I actually think Kieran raises a really salient point. One of the things that's making our kids different these days is undoubtedly the impact of social media and technology. Mm-hmm. The algorithms that they're engaging with are designed by people who have their growth not in mind. Um, so they get learning from a really early age that anyone that disagrees with you is your enemy. Um, anyone who agrees with you is your absolute friend, which means they don't actually watch the conduct of people. They don't actually listen to arguments. I think all of us kind of have sort of started to go, you know, when do we lose the ability to actually sit down and in a really friendly way disagree with someone and just have a debate? When did we lose the ability to kind of go, you know, actually, maybe you've got a point there. Yeah. We, we fight to the death over, over way too many things and don't collaborate the way we used to. And we're definitely seeing teachers telling us that our kids can't collaborate. They can't yeah, see someone else's point of view. They have compromised empathy. And that go, and what do we need empathy for? It's to self-regulate. It's to actually be able to go, actually, if I if I present this this way to a person, they're not going to like that. That's not going to be helpful. I'm gonna, I need to do it differently. But our kids are losing that. And one of the key drivers is undoubtedly um, the social media algorithms that, are, that, get, that get a bit out of us being, in, get a, uh, being outraged. Um, so we... Heard Aaron say, you know, teaching behavioural skills needs to be part or can potentially be part of the solution here. And there are a few texts from teachers saying, you know, that is not my job. You know, so, sorry, that's just a step too far. What do you think? Yeah, I think we've probably gone too far down that explicit teaching of behaviours and character and character traits. So, for instance, I think every teacher's had the experience of having taught a, a respect mini lesson and had to give a really good mark to a kid who produced an awesome respect poster, but then they watched a kid go out into the yard and box someone over their head with a rolled-up respect poster. So they haven't become respectful because they know about respect. So knowledge transfer is one of the mistakes that we've made in this pursuit. What we need to do is to immerse our kids in highly respectful environments. We need to remind them that this is the behaviour you just did then. That was respect. We really love it. That's We want to encourage that behaviour. The one you did over here, that, that's actually not respectful. And you've got some work to do to fix that up. We need to build up from the ground level a really clever working definition of respect for kids rather than think that because we told them this is respect and you did a poster that now you're respectful. It doesn't work that yeah. way. Yeah. The trouble is, and I'm, I'm sensing a high degree of frustration from teachers on the text message line, mm. Adam, saying just like this is not reality. Come into a classroom, tell us how we do this because, the, you know, this is hard to put into practice. And we know, Adam, that we have a yeah. huge teacher workforce shortage, that they are yeah. stretched to the max. You know, there's text from a teacher saying, you know, gladly retired now. Um, in practice realistically with everything that we expect of teachers already what's going to work can you paint a picture for us yeah so there's always a couple of little things you can do so if we go really practical just for teachers in the existing environment that they're kind of in some way stuck with we, we do a lot of training with teachers for instance about how you can use circle architecture so we show teachers how you can set the classroom up so it kind of feels a little bit more than a group like a group project rather than say a teacher at the front of the room assuming an authoritarian position with sometimes with a group of teenagers in front of them who are pretty chemically inclined to try and resist authority um pushing back and every class can just feel like such a battle but if we can start to use architecture that makes it feel a little bit more like a a group project 
then it's a little easier for young people to engage. And what we do is kind of tilt the odds just a little further in our favour. It's not perfect. It's not going to. It's not going to ensure or guarantee anything, but it just gives us a better chance. The other piece that I think is really important is that we actually do ask ourselves why is it so damn hard for our teachers at the moment. And part of that's because we're the, the areas where the greatest need are in Australia are the areas that we resource the most poorly. That's mm. not okay. But the kids that go to school in our, for instance, our large regional government schools where issues of poverty um, are, are most prevalent are the schools that have the, the least resources and the, res- the least support to help. Um, if we, as one of your caller points out, pointed out before, if we actually said, you know what, education is a, a social and an economic good, it's not something that I need to just shop around to try and give my kid an advantage for, um, then we, we would resource these schools in a completely different way. And I I've got so much respect for our teachers that are hanging around in those schools because um, they're, they're providing education where it's most needed. Adam, stay with us. Eleanor has called from Mont Albert. Welcome, Eleanor. Hello, Eleanor. Hi. Hi, Eleanor. What did you want to say? Well, I just think that, first of all, 100% students can be very disruptive, but I think that we can't forget that sometimes behaviours can be labelled as disruptive if, say, you're explaining something to another child. Um, That can then be labelled as disruptive. Uh, So they see a chat going on between students not and and it can actually be quite productive you're trying to help rather than distract is that what you're saying Eleanor yes okay and is that happening for you in class have have you had that happen to yourself yeah it has like if say a teacher's trying to explain how to multiply fractions and somebody's not getting it if you then try to explain you get told off for disrupting the class Mm. Eleanor, thank you for raising that. Adam, I don't know, is that, are there ways that we can kind of say right now's the time to support each other and now's the time to listen? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, too right. I think Eleanor taps into a really important thing that we actually help our teachers understand is that one of the things that's almost like an old cave person um, innate survival mechanism in us is that we're quite hardwired to look for negativity and to look for risk as people. Um, But in the classroom, you know, not every rustle in the bushes is a tiger waiting to kill us. So sometimes we're looking for something negative. We see two kids talking and think that it must be negative. (laughs) And so we try to jump on that and we're, we're alert to it. Whereas if we can help teachers actually understand the conversation in the classroom can sometimes be a really useful thing. Um, tip, the, tip, tip the odds, as I said, in the classroom towards young people being able to be highly engaged. Young people are really just looking to be listening, speaking, thinking or doing as much as possible. And I think one of the one of the problems that we kind of had with, with the, the interruptions of COVID and remote and online learning was that teaching became quite performative. It became about us sort of delivering or putting on a show to try and keep the kids entertained. That's not good education. In fact, that encourages kids to wait a lot and in the gap of being asked to wait they'll do things that aren't listening speaking thinking or doing in a productive way so um yeah i think that our teachers sometimes are a little bit on too much high alert for negativity in the classroom um and uh, and as a result sometimes kids you know miss a chance to do some really good learning Mm. by helping each other Adam, thank you for being part of our chat. Adam Voigt, a former principal, founder and chief executive of Real Schools. Mary is in Ringwood. Hello, Mary. Hello, how are you? Good. Do you have some solutions for us, Mary? 
I don't have solutions, but um, I have noticed a decline since education went from progressive to outcome-based um, in the 90s. Um, when I first, first began teaching in the late 80s, early 90s, um, it was progressive and they brought in all these standards. Um, and they did standardise across Victoria and now it's become national. And a lot of the um, outcomes that we have to re uh, reach as teachers in classrooms they're very fast tracks, they're not always relevant to the students and they're based upon performance, they're measured against other schools. Whereas when it was progressive, the students worked at their own pace, if the concept wasn't taught, that's okay, we got to it at a later stage and there's so much pressure on teachers to get through things, tick the box and then for students to try and keep up. But if they're not going to keep up, they are going to misbehave, it's not relevant to them, they switch off and they turn into kids, you know, and they're not, gonna, they're not interested. Yeah, Mary, that's a really interesting observation. Is it what we're expecting as the output and the outcome of education? Does that need to be um, rethought? Thank you so much for that. Um, we are talking about classroom behaviour. The stats tell us that Australia's classrooms are amongst the most disruptive in the world. So why do you think that is the case? And do you have any suggestions on how we can turn that around? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rosebud Secondary School has been quite proactive in trying to tackle this problem around behaviour in the classroom, going back to basics and actually saying, you know what, this is what we expect. This is how to behave. Lisa Holt is the principal there. Welcome, Lisa. Good morning. How are you? Good. Have you seen a change? Now, the stats are telling us this is worsening. The Senate inquiry says it's worsening. What What are you seeing on the ground? I think post-COVID, the most obvious thing we've observed is a, a dysregulation. Um, it, it's almost like students have forgotten how to behave and what are the norms of behaviour in different settings. So that's what prompted our work this year. Yeah, and so what have you been doing so we, we started doing some work around um, the science of learning and what the cognitive load for young people is and, and indeed our staff um, in our school environment and specifically started teaching behaviour as a curriculum. Erin Aaron alluded to it earlier. Mm. So what we've said to our students is, these are the ways we expect you to teach to, to behave and, and learn at Rosebud. And that's through really clear routines that um, all of our staff use. So there's a consistency um, and essentially a flooding of the expectation. So every, every class, every lesson, every day is uh, very clear routines that, that we expect. And they're not, they're not um, you know, particularly amazing. They're really simple. It's how we enter the classroom, how we exit the classroom, the types of voices we use when we're learning, um, how we answer questions um, and, and what routine our teachers use to get students' attention. So so does that just happen? Is that embedded in every class? There's sort of... It, it's wrapped around everything that you do every day. Yeah, correct. It's, it's based on the idea that we need to teach our young people what we as, we see as being the learning norms at Rosebud Secondary College, mm -hmm. which are, you know, very transferable to any other part of life that they go into, um, and them understanding that and understanding that by following these routines, um, they are able to put more of their energy and their, their, their brain into the learning of the content or the skills that the teacher's delivering. And indeed, our staff, therefore, are not having to spend as much time dealing with dysregulation, they're able to actually be teaching. Yeah. So 
what was that experience like for teachers? Because there's quite a lot of messages, Lisa, coming through saying, like, this doesn't feel like it fits in, a, in the reality of the classroom. How are we expected to do this? So what's that been like for your staff? Um, look, I'm really fortunate. I, I, I lead a, a pretty fantastic staff. But what I will say is they were, they were screaming out for support. So the, the power is in the collective nature of it. And when we started the year learning about young people and the brain, teachers love to learn. Um, so we started with that and then said, this is how we're going to transfer this into our classrooms. What they're reporting is more teaching time. They're, they're reporting feeling the power because um, all of the staff are doing it collectively. So our young people are just doing it now they're not having to spend the time going through each of the routines as as um in as much time each lesson because they're just they understand we stand behind our mm. chairs we wait at the door etc teenagers are fantastic they're, they're learners they adapt they do and it's isn't it funny lisa when when you have a child and you have no idea what to do with it <laughs> speaking from direct experience here you know it's all about routine routine kids crave routine and 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 they might not think they need it but they do what's the student reaction been like to this this change um, really, honestly, initially we heard them say things like, oh, well, this won't last long mm -hmm. um, because they're teenagers and they're great critical thinkers. Um, but they, you know, we've done lots of focus groups and lots of conversations with them. And what they report is that the classrooms are significantly calmer. They're quieter. They're able to engage in the learning more. They can see that the teachers are able. You're always going to get your outliers of students that, you know, have significant behavioural challenges, but they are an absolute minority. So the rest of the students are able to see that, that the focus is on learning and that's what the focus at school should be, on learning. I feel like some people might be surprised, Lisa, that this isn't just happening anyway, that this was actually something you had to actively implement and that we don't just always have classrooms and teachers where these expectations around behaviour are, are explicitly spelled out to kids and then enforced. Yeah, look, I think, um, well, some, I don't know if this has sort of entered into part of the conversation, but there's a lot to be said around teacher education. Um, university graduates aren't necessarily um, explicitly taught classroom management. They're expected to somewhat absorb it um, when they're doing their teaching rounds. So I've got a really young staff. Many of them did their teaching rounds during COVID on a screen. Um, so we have gone about this as a professional learning space for our staff as well as the learning for our students mm. uh, and I think that's unfortunately it's it's not the norm when they come out of teacher education so we, right. we need to provide them with that support. Lisa thank you stay with us Rosemary has called from Frankston hi Rosemary. Hi how are you going? Good um, what do you want to add? Very interesting uh, conversation I've got to say um, yeah I've um, I came I've been teaching in Australia for over 30 years. Um, I was teaching in uh, Lebanon and in Ireland before that. And uh, I've got to say Australia was probably the most difficult place um, to teach. Uh, I actually love teaching. It has made me definitely a better person. But uh, I would think that uh, Australia prides itself on being very egalitarian. It's the most unequal educational system I've ever come across. And um, Rosemary, in, in what ways and what impact have you seen that had then? That have then? Um, well, there's that societal divide. It's almost like, because I've taught in a private school down on the peninsula for two and a half years and um, then in the state system. K-12 
kids are kids. They're not really any different. But the expectation that is placed on the kids by the parents is often very difficult, very different for them. And also, I think to have, when I, well, when Irish people go to school, they go to the local school. There's not this argy-bargy about, oh, now we've got to have a look at the school because some schools aren't up to scratch. And I think that that actually then um, perpetuates this divide between uh, the private and the state system. Um, so, so in some ways we have too much choice and we're, we're being too picky in particular. Is that, well, is no, that what you mean? It, I mean, if you can pay big bucks, then uh, the pressure is put on the teachers to perform. I think Australian teachers are probably the best teachers in the world because um, they have, they're they not only able to uh, to uh, get across the curriculum and to um, in, you know enthuse the kids about it, but they're also able to deal with the societal uh, negativity towards teachers. Um, in Ireland, if you want to be a primary school teacher, you almost have to get the same marks as a doctor. Mm. So that, that, that is the level of uh, importance that that's placed on it so uh i think that society here doesn't value teachers that much the kids are great but also um i think the principal said something about collaboration if you look at the curriculum the curriculum now is devised by middle-class people middle-aged people uh, for a younger generation that's totally different to how they were brought up and I think we ha- need to have a real look at our curriculum. We need to have more collaboration within the curriculum so that they don't just sit an exam at the end of year 12 and that's it. They should be able to sit some sort of a testing module where it's collaboration that's involved. Because if you look at any of the jobs now, no one works independently. No, no one works in unison. Rosemary, thank you so much. Rosemary in Frankston with some really interesting observations there, particularly the distinction between Australia and Ireland. More calls in a moment. Lisa, just quickly, um, I know that, you know, behaviour is, is one thing and, and and what we teach and how we teach is one thing, but a, a whole lot of kids are coming to school hungry they're not bringing lunch. Um, barely any kids now are getting the recommended serve of fruit and veg. You know, there's. we're always told that, you know, we need to fuel our bodies and our minds with the right food. How much impact do you think that is having on kids' ability to concentrate and focus at school? Um, I, I don't know, to be honest. We, uh, we uh, have a pretty significant breakfast club um, at school, we, I wouldn't say that uh, that is a particular challenge for us. We do a lot of support in the community and we've got a great community around us. Mm. I think probably a greater challenge is the volume of energy drinks or sugar-based products they're having on the way to school. Um, and and maybe, maybe that, and just picking up on what Rosemary said, I think, you know, parents, parents as a result of COVID have probably a little bit more of a preoccupation with wanting to keep their young people happy. Um, you know, and that they will do almost anything they can to keep them happy. But I, I hate the idea that we would start having conversations about 
um, whether parents are right or wrong, we need to work together. Um, you know, we're, we're raising we're raising these young people together. So whether it be diet or what they're doing at home or what they're not doing at home or uniform or any of those other challenges, we're all part of the solution to that. And I think that that's, that's what's most important for us to be able to, you know, have these young people grow up to be really good humans and able to go into the workforce. Lisa, thank you for being with us. Lisa Holt, Principal at Rosebud Secondary. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Jay has called from Macclesfield. Hi, Jay. Hi there. Um, I'd like to uh, offer a solution, maybe. Um, <laughs> I'd like to see a social issue, a social issue curriculum in all our schools, maybe even beginning in primary school, but sec- certainly in secondary. Because our kids are facing many challenges, as your speakers have said, and I think they need help to unpack all it is to be a young person today. For example, you know, talking about consent or talking about social media or talk about cyberbullying and drugs and help them unpack that. And you would have a specific teacher who helped them unpack that kind of um, information and they would work with them three days a week and then be their counsellor two days a week. So... Kids will often come to someone they know and have spoken to um, in classrooms and they will go to them when they have problems. Mm. Jay, I mean, there plenty of schools have wellbeing offices and have that sort of support to some degree. Do you think no. that there's not enough of it or it just needs to look different? Or oh, I, I think it needs to be bigger than that. With the mm. kids today and what they face, I think it needs to be a, a social issues curriculum that is just as important as maths and science and English and needs to help them with everything it is to be a young person. I mean, it's great to have a wellbeing officer, but some kids don't go there because they hardly spend any time or know that person. But I think a lot of schools do do things, like they might have someone come in and talk about consent or they might have some come, come in and talk about um, cyberbullying. But, but it needs I to be an embedded in-school, ongoing support role, in your yeah. view. Yeah. Jay, thank you. Jay Mac- in Macclesfield. Melissa Riley is a Deputy Principal in Pedagogy, Learning, Design and Innovation at Sacred Heart College in Geelong. And they're taking a, a slightly different approach. From next year, we'll be introducing more flexibility into the school day and more student-led time. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Tell us more about what you're looking at for next year. So what we have been working on for the past few years, and obviously we've got interrupted a little bit by COVID, but we are um, uh, launching it next year, is a shake-up of the school day. And by that, I mean trying to build variability and flexibility into the day so that students can be better prepared when they leave the school gates for the challenges that face them after that, whether that be uh, higher levels of education or the workplace or whatever they choose to do. So how do you do that? How do you put that into practice? So most students have a school experience whereby they each day feels very similar. So lesson lengths are very similar. You might have singles and doubles, but there isn't a lot of variation. Lunch is always at the same time and every day kind of feels the same routine. And when they leave school, um, they find themselves in uh, situations whereby there is no routine and every day looks different and they have to very quickly adapt to that. And and, um, we find that they they aren't able to do that very successfully. So what we are doing is uh, we've got three different lesson lengths 
next year, so 30, 60 and 90 minutes, and there'll be every subject will have a combination of those lesson lengths. Lunchtime and wellbeing time is a little bit different each day, so three days a week we have wellbeing time. Lunchtime is at a different time each day, same with recess. And on Wednesday in particular, we're building a, um, a special day whereby the students will be engaged with much more self-direction in their learning. So in the mornings we have shorter lessons, so they're all going to be 30 minutes in each subject area. And then in the afternoon um, we're calling it flexible learning time and that means that for some senior students they'll be able to work off-site and for other students they'll be engaged in, um, in other uh, specialised programs that might teach them study skills or um, deal with some of the wellbeing issues that some of your other callers have, have raised. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to uh, take a different approach um, to how education can and should look in order to help transition students between the very regimented school um, structures and the less regimented structures that they uh, encounter in real life. So interesting, Melissa, because, I mean, in some ways it feels uh, quite... um contrast, quite a contrast to what we've just heard Lisa Holt describe at Rosebud where it was very much about bringing back routine and kind of having those regular ongoing expectations set and um, and, and this feels like quite a different approach. What, what gives you confidence that this is the right move for your school? So we have spent quite a bit of time going to the community, going to tertiary educators in our um, in our area, going to uh, the parental community, especially those that run um, businesses and and see graduates come into their workplaces, you know, with internships and that sort of thing. And we ask them, what do you want to see? in school graduates and one of the most important things that they highlighted was the ability for students to work independently and to be self-directed and so that is kind of like the um that's the golden egg that we're aiming for Mm. the idea that students are able to not necessarily have to have a teacher guide every single minute of the learning now we know that um uh, the importance of explicit instruction um, and direct instruction for uh, front-loading new concepts for students i mean that the cognitive science is behind that is very clear but there are some activities and there are some times when students have more than enough capacity to be able to direct themselves or to be able to work independently on a task and so we want to try and kind of ensure that that is something that is um, put into our school day regularly and that students have the experience of not everything being the same all the time. It doesn't mean that there isn't structure. It doesn't mean that there isn't routine. It just means that not every day will be exactly the same. Do you think this different approach will have an impact on class behaviour? I think that one of the things that we're seeing coming, and I mean, we are you know more than a year post-COVID now in terms of the disruptions that we had before, but we are seeing more and more students um, exhibit behaviours that show that they're disengaged from their learning. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I think that that period of disruption has been uh, uh, difficult for some students to settle back into the routines of school. But I also think that um, the idea that everybody learns in the same way in the same time frames and every day looking the same, I think that now uh, is something that students are finding difficult um, to be able to to cope with that. It doesn't feel natural to them anymore. And we know that the industrial model of schooling, the the one that was um, essentially put in place so that it could train good workers when they left school, um, that's not fit for purpose anymore. Mm -hmm. So what we are trying to do is create a new type of system whereby um, we can engage students uh, uh, in different ways, at different times of the day, uh, for different lengths, and make sure that the learning that we give them is far more personalised. 
Melissa, thank you so much and all the best. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what it looks like and how, how it, um, what sort of results you see from it. Melissa Riley is a Deputy Principal, Pedagogy, Learning, Design and Innovation at Sacred Heart College in Geelong. This text from Bernie at Upper Ferntree Gully, active engagement by the teachers is key nowadays. The school curriculum is 100 years old and needs to change. The sit-down classroom only suits some. The disruptive kids rule the class, so they need to be addressed. More physical activities for behaviourally challenged kids and learning difficulties need to be addressed in a more holistic manner. Thank you for all the texts and the calls and to all our guests as well. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow and uh, I'm filling in for Rochelle Hunt all week, so I look forward to chatting to you again then. Have a great day. 